Welcome. This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. So excited today to feature another panel from the Collingswood Book Festival, and this one's called Smokin' Joe and Jersey Joe. In the past few years, I've learned about the boxer Jersey Joe Walcott, who fought for 21 years and won the World Heavyweight Championship in 1951. He grew up and lived all his life in Camden County, New Jersey, where I've lived for the past eight years. Even more interesting to me was that after fighting for 21 years as a boxer, he retired and went right into a very productive civic life in Camden County in the state of New Jersey, and that included becoming sheriff of Camden County. He was the very first African-American to win a countywide elected office here. So I found the biography of him by James Curl and read it and enjoyed learning about uh, Walcott's truly mar- remarkable life. I also was fortunate to get to know Vincent Cream, who's Walcott's oldest grandson, who wrote the foreword for Curl's book, but he has also led a successful effort to erect a statue of Walcott in Camden. As for Smokin' Joe, that's Joe Frazier, I knew that Joe Frazier was a longtime Philadelphia resident and that he fought some epic bouts with Muhammad Ali. And I think that, you know, the thrill in Manila is one of the greatest lines of sports poetry that we have. So I was excited when the new biography came out this year by Mark Cram Jr. called Smokin' Joe. And I paired uh, Mark Cram Jr. with Vincent Cream on a panel at the Collingswood Book Festival and really enjoyed talking with them about the books about these fighters, but the men themselves. And uh, it was it was a great time. And we even had a surprise appearance by Joe Frazier's daughter who asked a question at the end. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion that we recorded at the Collingswood Book Festival in early October. Smoking Joe and Jersey Joe. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started here. This panel is called Smoking Joe and Jersey Joe. And I'm thrilled to have Mark Cram Jr. Uh, to my left here and uh, Vincent Cream, who, who's the oldest grandson of Jersey Joe Walcott. He wrote the foreword to the uh, Jersey Joe Walcott, a boxing biography. Uh, Mark is the uh, author of the recently published Smokin' Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. Um, so it's a great opportunity to talk about these two fighters and uh, you know, folks that knew them well and have written about them. So, yeah, I want to let everyone know we are recording this discussion and we're going to turn it into a podcast. So uh, we're, we're doing that. And it's uh, writerslatitude.com is the name of the podcast. You can find it, well, writerslatitude.com. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. So let me introduce the panelists in more depth. Um, in addition to Smoking Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier, Mark Cram is the author of Like Any Normal Day, A Story of Devotion, which was awarded the 2013 Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. Very prestigious award. His works also appeared in Best American Sports Writing, and he received the 2011 Sigma Delta Chi Award for Feature Writing. He's a former senior writer for the Philadelphia Daily News, where he spent 26 years? 26 years at the Daily News, and he's worked for the Detroit Free Press, the Baltimore News American, Philadelphia Magazine, contributed to the New York Times. He's the son of the late Mark Cram, a highly regarded writer for Sports Illustrated and the author of a controversial book on the rivalry between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, Ghost of Manila. And they actually have Ghost of Manila at the Barnes & Noble tent over there as well. And Mark lives right down the road in Haddonfield. Uh, 
To my right is Vincent Cream, who lives in Pensacola, right? Mm -hmm. Vincent's in Pensacola. He wrote the foreword to the uh, Jersey Joe Walcott biography by James Curl, which was published in 2012. Um, but that book's available as well. Vincent knew his grandfather very well and has many stories to tell about. I believe you said he, you were in your late 30s when he died, right? Yeah, 34. So, yeah, so you knew him well. Um, and jo Jersey Joe Walcott was much more than the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, he was very civically involved in Camden County, and in the early 70s, he was elected sheriff, which make, made him the first African-American ever to win countywide election in Camden County. Um, Vincent has led the successful fundraising efforts in partnership with the Camden County Historical Society and the Camden County government to uh, put a statue of Walcott up on the waterfront uh, in Camden. Uh, we'll get into that statue, which will go up maybe sometime next year, the following year, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that project later in this discussion. Uh, first, I want to start with, uh, you know, talk about these two fighters. I mean, in, you know, boxing, you know, the golden age of boxing was probably the 70s, right, Mark? 60s. 60s, 70s, 70s and, uh, you know, it was uh, boxing, being heavyweight champion of the world, meant a lot more in the 50s and 70s when Frazier and Walcott were. It was like, it was sort of like being the Super Bowl champion. You were front page news, you were a celebrity. Um, I was talking to my mother the other day who's 80, whose short term memory is not great, but she said, oh, I remember Jersey Joe Walcott, I remembered him well. So, you know, he was, he was known worldwide. And uh, Frazier as well was, you know, the rival of Muhammad Ali and, uh, you know, a huge figure in sports. And they were both right here. I mean, uh, Frazier was in Philadelphia. Um, Walcott lived all his life in Camden County mm -hmm. and very involved. So, I mean, this area was a real central point for the boxing world. Um, and Muhammad Ali lived here for a little while as well. So that sometimes I think maybe we don't think about that or forget that. But um, this is you know why we want to talk about these boxers today. So I want to actually we're going to start with a short reading from the prologue of uh, Smoke and Joe from uh, Mark Cram here. Well, thank you very much for coming. I'm really grateful to see you all here today. Um, you know, when I uh, set out on this project in 2016, uh, my goal was to uh, develop Joe as a um, more than just a fighter. I wanted to give a sense of the kind of human being he was so that generations uh, 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 down the road could really get a grasp of, of of who he was as a man. Um, and I'm gonna read a part of the prologue, which I think sort of, sort of gets at that. Um, <clears throat> Big hearted in ways that the crowds would seldom see, Joe looked upon the work he did with the boys and girls at the gym as more than just boxing instruction. Only a few would have any chance in the sport in which he had distinguished himself yet he understood that his calling was far larger. For the ones with nowhere to go but the streets when school let out, he provided a place to work off the simmering rage that poverty breeds. For those who came to him with some ability and the same dream that he once had, he provided a bed to sleep in at the gym and a couple of hundred dollars each week to get by on, the way Cloverlay had given him a leg up years before. Along with his son Marvist, he worked with his other sons, daughters, and assorted nephews and nieces who would come to appreciate and indeed love him, not just for his hallowed accomplishments in the ring, but also for how he gave of himself in large and small ways. 
As he sat with me that day in his apartment, it did not escape him that the way forward for him had been paved not just by his own hard work, but by the help of others. I was born into animosity, bigotry, hatred, white water, colored water, he told me. I look back on those days and I think, well, you are a better man because of them. The world has changed to the point where we now have a white, a black president, but the youngsters still need to be shown that someone cares. Big names would come and go at the gym for years, fellow champions, actors, politicians, and journalists by the score. Whenever Joe would drop by, parking his Cadillac up on the sidewalk by the gym entrance, someone would spot him and say, hey champ. Grinning, Joe would wave and reply, yo man. In an air of boarded up houses, he would sit with the firemen at the station around the corner and occasionally play half ball with them on summer evenings. When he was not working out in the gym, chances are that he would be outside under the hood of his car fixing something. He loved tinkering with cars. Whenever he was driving someplace and spotted one with a flat, he pulled over, introduced himself to the distressed driver, and changed the tire. But it was an episode that occurred on a December day in 1986 that revealed to former cruiserweight Kevin Dublin the type of man Joe Frazier was. Holiday lights blinked in the windows along North Broad Street on that cold, cold day. Joe was on his way to Atlantic City, where one of his fighters, heavyweight Burt Cooper, had a bout that evening at Resorts International. On his way out of the gym door, Joe ordered his, ordered his son Hector and Dublin to come along, if just to keep an eye on them. Both were just starting out in their careers of their own. With Joe behind the wheel and Hector and Dublin in the back, the limousine glided down broad toward the Ben Franklin Bridge, only to draw to a sharp stop as Joe came upon a man with no legs crossing the street in a wheelchair with a can of kerosene in his lap. Joe parked the car at an angle on broad and hopped out, dressed in a long fur coat and a cowboy hat, as passersby stopped on the sidewalk and looked on in curiosity. Come on, Joe said to the man in the wheelchair, looks like you need some help. Joe picked up the man and placed him in the passenger seat as Hector and Dublin stowed the wheelchair and the can of kerosene in the trunk and snapped it shut. Joe asked the man, where are you headed? When the man gave him a nearby address, Joe steered the limo up and down some side streets and found it. Leading up to the door was a ramp constructed of haphazard pieces of splittered wood. Joe placed him in the chair that Hector set up and pushed him to the door. Dublin followed behind with a can. Covering the windows of the tiny, narrow house were quilted blankets to keep the cold out and the heat in. Dublin remembered thinking once he stepped inside that the occupants were squatters, yet he could not be sure. Their few possessions were scattered in the living room and dining room, including a table and chairs, a TV, and two kerosene heaters. In the shadows were three children. A woman came out of an adjoining room and stopped short when she recognized Joe. The woman squealed, Lord, look who it is! Joe looked down, down at the man and said, you look, like you, could you look like you could use some love. The man replied, no man, you already showed me love by picking me up and bringing me home. Nah, Joe said. He stooped over and pulled out a roll of $100 bills out of his sock. He peeled one off, then another, and ha he handed the man the money. The man looked up at him with bewilderment in his eyes and asked, why you do this? Joe replied, you need some help. Joe signed some photographs 
that Hector retrieved from the limo, and then they were on their way to Atlantic City. Ordinarily, whenever Joe was driving anywhere, there would be Bobby Womack or some other soul singer blaring from the speakers, but not today. It was quiet, as Dublin remembered, kind of weird. For close to an hour, Joe barreled down the Atlantic City Expressway and said nothing, the trees alongside the highway spinning by. Then, unprompted by any question or comment from the young man in the back, he addressed Hector in Dublin. See that? See? That was a man going out in the cold weather to get heat for his family. There was another long silence, and then Joe said, as if to himself, a tear in the corner of his eye, you never know, man. Thanks, Mark, for reading. That's an excellent part, and there's like many, many excellent parts and scenes throughout this book, so I definitely encourage you to pick it up and read it. And it's a great segue for the first question I want to ask. And actually, I'll start with uh, you, Vincent, but I want you to take this one on too, uh, Mark. So both fighters, um, Frazier was born in Beaufort, South Carolina, and uh, you know, very deep poverty and a rough time. And I believe his father was a one-armed moonshiner, right? Well, he was a handyman come bootlegger. Okay. <laughs> he was a guy, kind of a guy that if you needed to get out of town, Joe's father could find a way to get you out yeah, of town. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those things. And uh, uh, Jersey Joe Walker, Arnold Crane, as he was known as a young man, was also born into you know, pretty extreme poverty here in Camden County. And you, you, there was a line you talked about, the simmering rage that poverty breeds. Right. So I want to ask, and start with you, Vincent, like, tell me about um, your grandfather's you know, childhood, growing up. I mean, both fighters worked in very hard labor, menial jobs of all kinds while even fighting, which is amazing to think about. So tell me about uh, his upbringing and how he got into boxing. Okay, well, once again, thank everybody for coming out. It's nice to see so many interested faces in such a, an interesting topic. I, I didn't write the book. I wrote the four, but I've been living the story my entire life. I can really appreciate Mark's outstanding uh, reading just a, a moment ago. Um, reflecting back on my grandfather, I was, I'm his oldest grandson. He was about 46 when I was born. He died at 80. So I spent 34 years of my life following him around, <laughs> following him around and, and knowing what a hero looked like firsthand. Um, so he would tell me a lot of different stories and, and a lot about his background and, and how he came up. And um, he was one of 10 children. My, my great-grandfather was actually a, um, a stowaway orphan from the Virgin Islands. So he came to the States when he was a young man and uh, he married my great-grandmother and they had 10 children. Um, so my grandfather grew up with an older father. Um, when he was a little kid, um, back in uh, the 20s, because he was born in 1914, the older men used to always send for the children. Hey, go get, go get those kids. We're going to watch them play baseball. They didn't have TV, radio. That type of stuff was, you know, peripheral to, to entertainment. <laughs> so they would have the kids entertain them. And they would always send for my grandfather to come because he was a fancy little boxer as a kid. And uh, my great-grandfather inspired him and encouraged him that if he had the right opportunity, even as a kid, that he could be a champion. Um, that leads me to kind of where I am. I mean, I, I believe that if you inspire a, a child when they're a child, that you have no idea how much of an impact it will have on them. And my grandfather fought 21 years, I'm kind of jumping ahead in the story, uh, before he won the heavyweight championship. It was an unprecedented uh, act to fight that long and endure that much hardship and those many setbacks. 
But I guess he was blessed and, and built for it. But it all started with his father telling him as a child that, that you could do it. Can you explain to me real quick what a stowaway orphan is? Because well, that's an amazing story. My great-grandfather, um, as I said, was born in the Virgin Islands. I really don't have too much more background beyond that. But when he was about 12 years old, he ran away. Uh, he ran away and he got on a ship and stowawayed. And the longshoremen traveled the world and they found him. And when they found him, they kind of absorbed him and ado adopted him into their culture. Um, he became um, um, a short-order cook. He spoke six languages. He traveled the world. And when he settled uh, in the States, he was a, a Mason. So he respected uh, a traveling person, someone that may need a hand or help because he did. And that was the type of life he lived and the type of things that my grandfather saw. Okay, so he was a stowaway for a number of years. He didn't stow away for a number of years. When well, they he, found him, they kind of absorbed him and, he, he was on and the adopted ships. him. Yeah, yes, yeah, he yes. Was on the ships mm -hmm. for That's an amazing story. All right, Mark, what about uh, Frazier's background? Well, Joe uh, grew up in the poorest uh, county in, uh, in America. Uh, Buford, South Carolina was the, down in the low country uh, down there. And uh, in the 40s, uh, it was plagued by malnutrition and disease. And, you know, Jerry, Joe very much grew up in the vice of um, the Jim Crow laws down there. His mother uh, picked vegetables in the fields um, from morning till night. Uh, uh, they lived in a, as, a, as we said earlier, his father was a, a bootlegger. Uh, Joe would, or he would, his father Reuben would take Joe out into the woods where they would cook up the corn liquor. And uh, they would do it in the early morning on foggy mornings. So the the police wouldn't see the the smoke uh, yielding from the uh, from the still. Uh, he had a rough and tumble childhood. Uh, he was deeply he was very much loved by his parents and his family, uh, but uh, there was no future in uh, in South Carolina. Um, and at the, the age of 15, um, he took the Greyhound bus, uh, as he called it, the dog, to New York. Mm -hmm. And then migrated down to Philadelphia where he had a sister, an older sister. He had been getting into trouble in New York, stealing cars with another friend from South Carolina. And when he came to Philly, you know, uh, it, that's when his life turned. He, uh, uh, his sister said, look, I th you know, if you get into trouble down here, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do for you. But why don't you go over to the 23rd PAL, the Police Athletic League, get to know the cops. And, you know, he was, she was hoping that he would come under their influence. Well, Joe was 30 pounds overweight, couldn't fit into any of his clothes. He had, but he wanted to do uh, do right, so he went over there, and actually his life did take a turn for the for the better. He lost the weight, and the trainers over there, one of them being Yank Durham, once they heard him hit the heavy bag with his left hook, uh, they they knew that they had something on something on their hands there. And that was sort of the beginning for him. So, um, so as I say, there was nothing really. I mean, many of the young people in South Carolina at that time came north. It was part of the the Great Migration from from the South at that time. Well, that's a great detail in the book too. That he had, he got on the bus with a bag full of fried chicken. Yeah, his mother. His well, he had his. He had a bag with his. He had a bag with a change of Sunday clothes in it. Uh, and his mother gave him a, a bag of her fried chicken, and and uh, and that was it. He, 
that was, you know, he came back to South Carolina many times through the years, but but once he had gotten on that bus, he was a he had left South Carolina behind, really. Yeah, I mean, I think you did a great job with a lot of the food details in the book. Oh. So he was uh, definitely a voracious eater. Well, that, uh, yeah, that that brings it to life. Um, oh, I want to jump in the next question. I'll start back with you here, Mark. Both Frazier and uh, Walcott fought some epic heavyweight battles. Um, Frazier with Muhammad Ali, um, three big fights. And then I want to get to, you know, after talk to Mark about those, but Walcott fought both uh, Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciano in some epic fights that are still talked about and written about and studied today. So uh, tell me tell me about some of Frazier's biggest fights that really brought him into the... No. Well, of course, the centerpiece of Joe's career was it were his three epic fights with Ali, Muhammad Ali, uh, and their relationship or uh, uh, rivalry, I should say, uh, spilled over outside the ring. Uh, you know, Ali, uh, both of them were Olympic champions in 1960. Uh, uh, Ali was then known as Cassius Clay, was the light heavyweight champion for the United States, and Joe won the uh, heavyweight uh, gold medal in 64. So it was almost inevitable that at some point they would get together in the ring and sort, at, sort it out. However, uh, uh, Ali got into, uh, 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 was convicted of uh, evading the draft, the Vietnam War, and uh, he was exiled from the ring for three and a half years. And during that time, Joe really developed his skills. He was, uh, he really, his trainer was uh, Yank Durham and uh, also uh, the co-trainer was uh, Eddie Futch. And uh, they really developed Joe that by the time that they fought in the ring in March of uh, 1971, Joe was uh, really uh, on top of his game. But just to backtrack a little bit, Ali was, was it a, such a, a genius at self-promotion, as everybody knows. Um, uh, and he was constantly uh, pestering Joe. Uh, in fact, during his exile, he even moved to Philadelphia. And he would always show up to wherever Joe was and sort of bait him and get the crowd going. And uh, at one point, Joe got so outraged by it. He, I mean, he just blew his top. And he, he was trying to... He was, he was getting some things out of his, the trunk of his car and he reached for a tire iron and he was going to take it to Ali. I mean, he was so mad. Uh, somebody stepped in between him. I don't think he would have hit him with the tire iron, but he uh, that just sort of indicates sort of how enraged Ali could get him, how worked up he could get him. Anyway, in March of 1971, March 8th, uh, Joe uh, took it all out on Ali in the ring and uh, knocked him down in the 15th round and it was really the pinnacle of his career. Uh, and, um, you know, they would have two subsequent fights. Um, uh, and in just in Manila three years later, or 1975, they would just sort of put the, write the ending to their story. And, uh, and it was kind of an animosity between the two that would sort of wax and wane. And by the 90s, Joe uh, would get... Uh, as Ali's health deteriorated, uh, Joe would say things that would sort of make everyone cringe, like, you know, look at him and now look at me. Look who won. You know, I won. You know, it was really kind of ugly. Uh, 
but one of the things that I really wondered about in this book is that, in writing this book, is what did they do with that anger in the end? I mean, did Joe go to his grave uh, uh, bearing this grudge, or did they work it out in their lifetime? And I was able to resolve that at the end of the book. I think that I think that the answer's at the end of the book, and it's really quite a touching and moving scene between the two of them. So. Uh, that was, you know, the Alith fights were the reason that we are here talking about Joe. And the thrill in Manila is still, is that the one that most people know? Well, uh, the first one was called the Fight of the Century, and it was unmatched. It was just a wonderful uh, sporting event. I mean, probably the most memorable. Thrill in Manila, nobody really expected that fight to be uh, anything. They, you know, both fighters were in decline, uh, but... You know, sports can produce these magical moments where two fighters or two athletes that are in decline can rise to a moment, and that's what they did in Manila. Uh, it was just a 115 degrees in the in the ring in Manila, uh, 14 in the 14th round. At the end of the 14th round, Joe couldn't see out of his either eye. He was actually uh, uh, had congenital cataracts in his in one eye, and then. The other eye was, was closed shut from the battering he took. Ali was sitting in his corner, you know, telling his uh, uh, trainers to cut the gloves off. I mean, he just, he was finished. And it was, it was like they had nothing left. And it was at that point that Eddie Futch stepped in and said, that was it, Joe. You can't see out of this, your eyes. You know, Eddie had seen seven fighters killed in the ring. He loved Joe. He didn't want to see Joe be the eighth. And uh, there's a lot of talk that Ali was ready, as they say, ready to quit. But I doubt that theory. I think that uh, uh, Angelo Dundee, his trainer, would have pushed him out, as he did against Liston back in the 60s. But great, great uh, sporting events. We'll never see anything like it again in the ring. Uh, uh, two heavyweights. It was just the the best that the sport could be. And Vincent, so um, Jersey Joe Walcott fought epic fights with Joe Lewis and Marciano. And I think there's interesting too, one of the, maybe the imperfections about boxing is they, there were split decisions and there was a lot of uh, controversy, especially about maybe the first Joe Lewis fight. So tell us about some of his most epic fights. I have, I have to begin by saying that I grew up in the Joe Frazier, Ali era. So these great fights that Mark's talking about, I absolutely remember as a kid. Um, I want to try to like tie my story to some of the things he's saying because Joe Frazier was uh, very inspired by my grandfather's career and they were very close friends as well as uh, when he was in Muhammad Ali. Um, my grandfather began his boxing career in 1930 and he fought until 1951, uh, 52 actually. And um, on his rise to, to fighting, he fought a lot of different guys. And a 21-year career of boxing spanned so long that he did a lot of unprecedented things prior to him doing it. The one thing, the, the first story that comes to mind is he fought a very famous fighter in Philadelphia named Harold Johnson. And uh, Harold Johnson is in the Boxing Hall of Fame as one of the greatest light heavyweights of all time. Well, he was from Philadelphia. Grandpa was obviously over here in New Jersey. So they put the fight together. He went to uh, Philadelphia and they fought. Well, in the third round, he knocked Harold Johnson out. And it was another night for him of fighting. 
But when the fight was over, they went back to the locker room and his trainers were just ecstatic. They're like, do you know what you did? Do you know what you did? And he says, well, I, I just fought a great fighter and, and I won. He said, no, it's a little bit more than that. He said, remember back about 15 years ago when you fought Phil Johnson? And he said, ah. he said, who's Phil Johnson? He said, Harold's father. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, you uh, are, are the first fighter to ever be the father and son. So you've kind of transcended generations in your career. Um, but I found, always find that to be intriguing because my grandfather fought in eight heavyweight championship fights. He fought uh, the great Joe Lewis twice. He fought Ezra Charles uh, from Cincinnati four times. And then he fought Marciano twice. Um, as, as Sam was saying, you know, back then you had to beat the champ to get the belt from him. Um, in December 1947, December 5th, 1947, I was studying, I was living in this area, but I always <laughs> studied that one. Um, my grandfather fought Joe Lewis for the first time in Madison Square Garden. And if you go back and, and history will tell you, in, in any publication that you can find, any news footage you can find, that my grandfather won that night. Um, Joe, the fighter, fighting is about styles, and my grandfather always felt like his style was the perfect counter to Joe Lewis's style. So they fought the first fight. Um, Grandpa lost the fight um, by split decision, and the first thing he wanted to do was get back to South Jersey so he could tell all his friends, hey, I, I didn't lose that fight. They didn't give it to me that night. Um, he fought him a second time, and Lewis knocked him out. When, he fought the, when they fought the second time, because of the controversial way that the first fight ended, um, Lewis and they was going the same way, but they wanted my grandfather to fight a little bit more aggressively. So the referee was in, you know, kind of refereeing the fight and standing close to my grandfather, and he kept saying, get in there, you know, get in there, stop, stop moving around, get in there. So my grandfather said, this is Joe Lewis, and I'm, I'm fighting the greatest heavyweight in the world. You, you're telling me what to do. I'm, I'm wondering if I'm fighting you and him. So, so ultimately, Lewis knocked him out, and um, then Lewis retired. Um, when Lewis retired, Charles and my grandfather fought four times and split uh, the four fights, and my grandfather won the third one and became the oldest man to ever win the heavyweight championship. Hey, Alicia. I see some of my friends from, from and, and this is my other Lisa over here, some of my friends from high school. Um, and college in the area, but um, so so he fought a lot of great fighters. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to mention when we were kids growing up, and the Ali Frazier stories were manifesting. Everybody wanted to see Ali and wanted to see Frazier. We were no different. We had a champion in the house. He was just grandpa to us. We're always <laughs> looking to the next thing. So um, when we had the opportunity, we'd say, "Grandpa, you know, take us to get ice cream." He would take us. So one day we said, "Take us to see Ali. Take us to meet Ali." He says, "Okay, okay, okay." We waited. A week later, went by. Grandpa, we're going to see Ali. He said, come on, come on. We hopped in the car. He took us to Philadelphia, to Cloverley. <laughs> and so we're going to, we're like, where's this? He's like, we're going to see Joe Frazier. We're like, oh, this is pretty good. We're going to see Joe Frazier. So we got back, and there was a, 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 a VIP sectioned off, you know, a rope, velvet rope. And everyone else was watching kind of like this. And we went back behind the rope, and Grandpa talked to this man sitting next to us with this big hat on. And then he said, then he turned to us and said, I want, this is, this is, uh, I want you to meet this gentleman. So we looked and he lifted his hat up and it was uh, Burt Lancaster. We were like, oh man, this is really getting interesting. So we laughed and joked about it, but we kept riding him to see Ali. And later uh, that next summer, again, before the fight of the century, my grandfather was refereeing, I mean, wrestling matches. 
I don't know if some of you remember wrestling with Bruno San Martino and all those guys. <laughs> yeah, Ric Flair. We would go south. Um, we got in the car with him, me and my brother and two of my younger cousins, and we went down south. We went through Virginia, uh, North Carolina, so, and he refereed fights. The whole time we're like, when are we going to meet Ali, Grandpa? <laughs> Finally, we got. We, he took us. We went to Miami Beach and, and met Ali in, in Miami on the table getting rubbed down. So we had the opportunity to meet both of them, combining that great, great series of fights and a lot of the things that he did as well in our heads. Well, you remember uh, back in the uh, 70s, 60s, and 70s, everybody had, I mean, was it you were either for Ali or for Frazier? Exactly. It was a, uh, and, and, and what Bug, Bug Joe was, many people in Philadelphia were for Ali. In fact, a politician said at one time, uh, came out in the paper and said, this isn't a Joe Frazier town anymore. This is an Ali town. Joe just went right through the ceiling. Understandable. Because he felt like, uh, uh, you know, he had uh, Ali had come into his own backyard and was uh, was messing with. He would call it skylarking. He mm. said he didn't want any more of the skylarking by by Ali. But it was unbelievable. It was it was an ongoing drama that played itself in the sports sections and on television. I mean, they would absolutely get. But everybody had a betting interest. Oh yeah. In in, in in on that in those fights. I got a great great Joe Frazier story. In 1994, my grandfather died, and um, so my my father, and my uncle, um, they were still alive. But it was very very raw and fresh in our family's minds that we had just lost him, and he was uh, being uh, inducted into the New Jersey uh, Sports Hall of Fame up in the Meadowlands. So. My father, my uncle, they said, we want you to go up and accept the award and take your cousins and your brothers with you, you know, you guys going up. So so we get up there, and we don't know what's going on. There's the velvet rope, and here we are behind it again, and Grandpa's not with us. And so as the things evolved, uh, as the night evolved, you get the program, it's like, oh, Rick Barry's here. He's also from New Jersey. Althea Gibson's there. Uh, Roosevelt Brown, who played football. They're all up there, and they're receiving these awards from all these famous people. I think... Uh, Chuck Daly gave the award to Rick Barry. Um, uh, one of the one of the big giants gave the award to Roosevelt Brown. Monty Irvin went in. Cal Irvin, I should say. Joe Frazier presented the award to us that night. Yeah. So when he came up, <laughs> he my grandfather when he died, it was a big blizzard and it was a storm, so a lot of the fighters couldn't get into town for the funeral. So when he came up, he walks up and he says, "Oh, I'm so so sorry I couldn't come to your father's funeral." And I said, well, well, champ, it wasn't my dad. It was my grandfather, and these are my cousins. He said, oh, okay, all right, well, what are you guys doing when this is over? And we're like, well, we're going back to South Jersey. He said, no, 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 no. And the four of my brothers and I hopped in the back of one of his limos, and he took us all over New York. We went to Lawrence Taylor's club at the, where he had a club. We, we just had a great time. But he was a wonderful, wonderful man and, and truly a, um, an inspirational guy. He always... Like every champ, always had a kind hand to, to reach out. So I, I interviewed over a hundred people for my book. Uh, I didn't I didn't count like a lot of authors do how many they interviewed, but so many people, and not one person had a really a bad thing to say about Joe. Uh, and in all my years as a writer, a journalist, I really hadn't. I mean, you usually find somebody, but they really just he really had a way of connecting um, uh, to and understanding what it meant to be the champ. Back in those days, the champ had a, it was a certain designation. 
And so he carried himself like the champ. He knew what people expected of him and 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 he had an awareness of, of, of other people's needs and things. And uh, uh, he was just a fine guy. I mean, I, I went into the project with a lot of admiration for him, but as a fighter, but you know, as I wrote the book, I really got this get a sense that he was a real decent man. And I want to, I have two more questions and then we'll open it up for questions from the audience. But I want to talk a little bit about, maybe Mark, start with you here about, and then go to Vince, about their lives after boxing. One thing that I think is remarkable reading both these biographies is they, um, you know, look at somebody about what, dementia pugilistica, right? Where they have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, punch drunk and have, I mean, getting hit in the head repeated times is not good for you. And uh, they had, you know, pretty healthy afterlives after fighting. I mean, I think there may be some complications with Joe, but compared to Ali and like Joe Lewis had a really difficult time. And we could make a, there's a long list of fighters in your book who uh, were, had very difficult, difficult times because of the physical beatings that they took. But um, their afterlives, they were, you know, supporting young people. Talk about their work after well, fighting and they fought a long time too. right well joe died at age 67 of liver cancer uh had he lived uh any longer i think you would we would have seen uh uh his faculties diminish uh, he had already been diagnosed with cte which is the uh, uh a disease that we hear a lot here connected with nfl football players but Joe got around. I mean, he was, uh, uh, he, he liked the party life. Uh, he liked being on the scene. Um, um, uh, uh, and he, um, you know, he would go to singing engagements. At one point, he had a singing group called the Knockouts. And uh, he just, you know, he put a lot of his money in that. And, but he really took it seriously. I mean, uh, he loved to sing, you know. I think it speaks well to him, actually. Uh, he was just, uh, 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 he loved the limelight. Uh, but as I say in my prologue and elsewhere in the book, he did a lot of things behind the scenes that really nobody uh, knew about. And Ali was the same way. They would prefer, they would perf- Ali would perform acts of kindness uh, just at random t- with people. Uh, involving sums of money that never made the papers. Uh, not because the papers wouldn't print it, they would have loved to have printed it. It just never, Ali just never let it get out. And Joe was the same way. Uh, so they really walk the walk in a lot of ways, in uh, ways that, uh, you know, speaks well of them as, as, as really, you know, as champions. And Vincent, I think when, uh Arnold Cream retired as Jersey Joe Walcott. He went to work with the Camden Police Department, working with juveniles almost the same month. So he fought for 21 years, which think of the pounding that he took in that time, and then to go on and tell us about you know his life after fighting. Well, I mean, um, as you said, I mean, you know, boxing is a, is a dangerous sport. Obviously, you're taking shots to the head, and we're hearing more and more about the effects of that in football players, obviously, and fighters. They do this for the love of the sport. They do this to entertain us. Um, and some, sometimes, you know, the path of their lives just takes them in a direction where when the, when the sport is over, so is their lives, or so are they. Um, my grandfather's story is a little different. Um, as, as I was telling my friend here earlier, he, um, he's kind of one of the original masters of boxing. And by that, I mean, um, 
So many, so here's Weeda Frazier in the back, everybody, and her husband Gary. Hey, y'all. <laughs> um, so many, so many um, fighters, um, you know, as I said, go through their careers and, and they, they end and then they're done. My grandfather's career, because he was one of the original masters, I, I like to use the analogy that uh, athletes are like uh, musicians. In order to be a great athlete, you have to love it. You have to practice it and work on it when nobody's watching just because of your passion. Musicians are the same way. Um, and when you go back to music as an art form, jazz is an original American art form. So when they began performing jazz here, those people were originals. No one had ever done those type, played music that type of way before. My grandfather falls into that category in boxing. Prior to him fighting, uh, heavyweight champions were kind of like dinosaurs. They kind of plodded along and swung big and breathed heavy and, you know, it would end. The little guys bounced around. My grandfather kind of combined both of those abilities, and he was kind of like uh, the original master of movement. Um, if you go back and you look at how he moved his head and how he moved his feet, and then you come forward into our current fighters, Muhammad Ali, uh, um, there's so many. History's replete with fighters that have copied his footwork and his movement. So I think some of those things helped aid in his what? Yeah, I, w I want to make the point that, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, Jersey Joe was um, used as, uh, in the movie, The Harder They Fall, to mm -hmm. instruct the El Toro, the big lumbering, uh, was Argentine yeah, fighter yeah, exactly. that uh -huh. really didn't have any ability. And, and Jersey Joe's in the ring sort of teaching him the ropes and trying to get him to, to uh, so it's an interesting tie-in that, that is, is, is as an old master. Right, and so again, you know, uh, you know, I guess my point was that um, he, he kind of set a new standard. And when he finished boxing, he continued to do that. He came back, as you said, and started working in the community um, because he always believed, and, and you mentioned it a moment earlier, Mark, that being the heavyweight champion was a singular thing. Um, there was nobody that didn't look up to the heavyweight champion then or now. Now we've got so many different belts and titles, it's a little different. The champions we're talking about were concentrated. They were the one. Now it's 15, 20 of them in one weight class because they want you to come see the fight. But those guys, they, back then, they took it seriously. They understood really what they were there for. Mm -hmm. You know, that kids looked up to them and they always had time for uh, people. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have to make an appointment with a publicist to find Joe Frazier. That's right. All you had to do was walk down Broad Street, knock on the gym door, and he'd be in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of that now. Try to get a hold of Bryce Harper or something. Mm. I mean, I mean, you wouldn't be a, or an athlete today. I mean, they're inaccessible, really, the way compared to the way the guys were back then, you know? Fighters back then. Even Ali. Ali lived in Cherry Hill. I mean, kids used to knock on his door and he'd let them in, you know? I mean, it's, it's such a... It's such a um, a great distinction between being special in the sport and being great as an athlete. I mean, you can be special and win a championship. Everybody knows you, everybody's excited. But what makes you great is when you come down off of that pedestal and you walk up to a kid or an older person and you extend who you are to them and you share that energy with them. My grandfather was that kind of champion. Joe Frazier was that kind of champion. Ali, so history's replete with them, but there's a lot of them that weren't like that.
Um, so when he came back, he, he helped, helped kids and helped people. Well, let's, tell us about your grandfather's life as a, in his civic work mm -hmm. as sheriff and beyond that, but also then a little more about why the, sta the about the statue project and why that's important. Um, again, it just my, my grandfather believed in helping juveniles, helping kids that didn't have direction, you know, resetting them, reminding them that if they had a day to breathe, they had a day of hope. You know, you can make something of yourself, but it's up to you. Um, so civically, he came came out, he worked with juveniles in sports, he, he did a lot of things in the community to encourage kids to go to school and get their educations. Um, and then he went on to become the first elected uh, sheriff of Camden County. Funny story about that, I was probably about 14 or 15 when that happened. Um, I remember he ran twice. And the first time he ran, um, the reporters, just like everybody else in politics, they're asking you, why you? How come you? Why should we pick you? And they asked him about his education. And he only had an eighth grade education because when my great grandfather died, the older kids went to work. He fought to make money, and he worked uh, on trash trucks and putting ice in the top of ice boxes the whole nine yards. But he, um, I'm, I'm just trying to stay with my thought, he um, encouraged people, I guess is what he just keeps coming back to after, after he finished. When he became sheriff, and they asked him about his education, the first time they asked him, he didn't have a good answer. And so he didn't win the first time. That wasn't the only reason. But he ran again because he was the picture of perseverance. He, he didn't have a give up bone in his body. When he ran a second time and they asked him the same question, you know, why you, what background, what's your education? He said, I have a PhD in life and how to deal with people. And he got elected by the largest margin of victory at that time. He went on uh, through that and, and became uh, the boxing commissioner for the state of New Jersey uh, when the casinos came. And, you know, they wanted to get the big fights in Atlantic City. They, they brought him in. Another story about another Hall of Fame. I went up to receive an award at the New Jersey Hall of Fame, not just sports. So when we went up there, Governor Tom Kane was going in, um, Whitney Houston was going in, Dionne Warwick, Joe Piscop, all these people on the stage. So I'm sitting next to Governor Kane, and he's telling me, he said, I remember your grandfather really well. And I'm like, yeah, we remember you, because remember when he retired, we saw the pictures. He says, um... You know, I'm a, I'm a Republican. I said, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> he says, well, when your grandfather, when, when boxing came to New Jersey, the casinos came to New Jersey, I had all this pressure from my Republican colleagues to pick a Republican to be the uh, boxing commissioner. He said, I told him, no, no, no. I have absolutely the best man for the job, and it's Jersey Joe Walcott. I'm picking him. And so when he told me the story, I said, Governor, you are absolutely right. And we, we laughed about it, but, but in the end, um, he, he did that job until, until he retired, um, and then he retired and, and left, left um, the baton to, to us, my generation, to take it forward. And that leads me to the statue and, and why the statue. Um, I was again sharing with my friend here that um, when my grandfather was, was fighting, everybody in his generation knew who Jersey Joe was because everybody heard. I mean, everybody that was born in the 1900s, they knew Jersey Joe. And then... When my dad's generation was born, they all knew, because that's when he won. Um, and then my generation came along, and we know, but we're looking at Ali and Frazier, so not all of us know. <laughs> and, and then there's the generation of my children. Um, they don't know. My, my, my oldest, my youngest son, I was showing some video to him a few years ago, 
And he said, this is amazing. I said, yeah, he was special. He said, no, no. I said, what's amazing? He said, I get to hear his voice. I wasn't living when he was living, so I never heard him talk. And that struck me because, again, what he did as a boxer was incredible. But what he did as a human being, you know, dwarfs that. And, and I think that um, it all came back to his father encouraging him. That, and, and, and that's what we're trying to do with this statue, create a place to start. When, when someone walks up with a child or with a young person that doesn't know Jersey Joe, and they teach them and tell them the story, it leads back to helping someone. And we want to inspire people to do that, and we want to create a, a vehicle for the next four, five, six generations so that they always remember what he did and when he did it. And people can support the statue. You're still raising funds. There's Absolutely. a great event on the uh, Battleship New Jersey recently. So how do they do that or find that? Go to the Historical Society? Right. Um, the, 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 the Camden County Historical Society is uh, our partner in raising the funds. Uh, they're nonprofits, so everything that we uh, donate to them is, is tax deductible. Um, you can go to the Camden County, uh, CamdenCounty.com website and get information on the links to, to uh, make donations as well as the uh, Camden County Historical Society. Okay, so yeah, in a couple of years there'll be a statue up there. Absolutely, I'll go see. Absolutely. So great. Well, I think um, we're going to open it up for questions now. So do we have the right in the back there? Uh, Vince, yes. uh, you had um, commented on your grandfather's fight with Lewis, mm -hmm. but you did not make any comments about Graziano. Did you have anything, any antidotes, anything that uh, Rocky comes Graziano to... Rocky Graziano or Marciano? Rocky Graziano. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I mean... I'm sorry, but that was my transition period with my father, Friday I Night Fights. I, I, can, I can only say that my, my experience with Rocky Graziano was that I was a kid and I had an opportunity to meet him. There were a lot of fighters that my grandfather fought that... I mean, in, in the course of his uh, career, spanning 21 years, one of the other... Um, interesting anecdotes is that he lost more fights than any other heavyweight champions ever so specifically to speak to the Graziano fight I'm not that tight on that particular one but I know they were great friends and there's a lot of great photographs of them floating around on the internet and, and you can see it anywhere thank you both for being here today um, I grew up in Philadelphia but I live in New Jersey in fact my mom when I used to I'd be late for dinner my mom nicknamed me Jersey Joe. So, <laughs> so uh, in my neighborhood, a guy came from Australia to study boxing. He said, I said, how did you wind up in Philly? He's Philly's the place for boxing. So he used to go to the Joe Fraser's gym. And then when I went to see him fight, he <coughs> his name is Levi Jones. I went to see him fight in Atlantic City. I got to meet your grandfather. Wow, wow that's, that's a great story. Yeah, so my question, how long uh, did he work in Atlantic City? Um... The last years of his life, um, the last years before he retired, I'd say probably about eight years. Uh, probably like two terms down there, yeah. He was down there for that whole, you know, resorts casino, you know, Donald Trump bringing fights to Philadelphia thing. It was kind of light right after the, the, the Ali Frazier era that, you know, that Atlantic City became big again. And again, when they brought him down there, he was down there probably for about a year. Yeah. Question right here in the front. Did your grandfather ever talk to you about when he refereed the Ali Liston fight and what he thought of that fight? Yeah, that's a funny story. The Ali Liston fight. Ali fought Liston two times for everybody that, that knows or doesn't know. 
And um, the first time he fought uh, Liston was the one where you always see the picture of him jumping in the air with his arms up and him holding him. And I shocked the world and all those things because he wasn't supposed to beat Liston. Um, he, at, right after that, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and then all the energy started to shift and, and the, you know, the discomfort with, you know, all of the fight game began to happen. Um, but as most times when the, when someone wins the belt, the fighter that, that he lost it to, I mean, he won it from, gets a return fight. So they had to make the second fight and because of everything that was going on in the climate at the time, it was hard to make the fight in a New York or in a, a Las Vegas. So they took the fight to Maine, Lewiston, Maine. And, you know, I mean, the mecca of boxing, Lewiston, Maine. So as they went up to Lewiston, Maine, um, a couple of things happened. The first one was they never had a, a heavyweight champion referee a fight before. My grandfather, the first one to do that. Um, the second thing that happened was they changed the rules. And the rule that they changed was when a fighter went down, the fighter that knocked him down had to go to a neutral corner. And then the count would begin once you got him situated while the guy was on the floor. If the ref is trying to get the guy to the neutral corner, he can't count. So what they did was they made it so that the ringside guy counted. And I don't know how many true boxing fans remember Ring Magazine. Uh, Nat Fletcher is the original uh, editor of Ring Magazine. He was the guy on the sideline doing the counting. So... <laughs> Liston and Ali were fighting, and you know they're moving around. It was early in the fight, and Ali hit him, and they always said it was a phantom punch. Nobody saw the punch, um, but he hit him, and Liston went down. Even if he was just shocky, you know, wow, he knocked me down. He could have gotten up probably, but he was waiting because you're trained to wait until they get to eight to get up. So he sat on the floor, and Ali's jumping all around the ring, and Grandpa's trying to get Ali to the corner. And by the time he got Ali to the corner. He went over, and then he started counting. And as he was counting, Liston got up, and Nat Fletcher called him. He went over, he wiped the gloves, and let them, let them begin the fight, and Nat Fletcher called him over and said, I counted him out, the fight's over. And that's how the fight ended. Um, it was a, just a bunch of confusion going on because so many things were happening at that time. Did, did your grandfather say he saw the Phantom Puncher? I mean, I never probed him like that. I never said, did you really see it? But, but, I, but I'm, I'm sure that it was just a shocky thing where he, where he hit him clean enough to knock him off balance, but not hard enough to knock him out. But all the things that were going on in the ring at that particular time just kept things confused, and that's how it ended. And just one more, did your grandfather say, ever say what his toughest fight was? Wow. Um, he always said that, um, that there were two, that, that, that Marciano probably punched harder than anyone else, but he said Joe, Joe Frazier probably, I mean, excuse me, Joe Lewis finished better than anyone else. And Ezra Charles was as technical as anyone that you would ever meet. So he didn't really pick a specific, but he fought a lot of great fighters, and I would say that. He was a great fighter. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I think we have time for one more question. For Mark. Give Mark a question. No. <laughs> okay. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Wita Frazier-Collins, and I am the daughter of the legendary, of course, Joe Frazier. And I just want to thank you. 
I've actually lived in New Jersey at one point and never knew about the book festival, so this is very nice. So thank you all for coming. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Vince, for continuing the legacy of your grandfather. And Mark Cram, you know how I feel about you. Yes, thank you. So my question to you, Mark, is what is the fondest thing that you can say to us, the most impressionable thing that you can say to us about Joseph Frazier? Well, I think I uh, uh, touched on it a bit earlier. Um, uh, I w as I, you know, I was impressed with the, the kind of man he was. When I finished the last page of the book and reflected on what I had written, I was truly, um, I mean, the last couple pages of the book where Ollie and Joe get together and resolve their differences um, really meant so much to me. Um, to After all their back and forth, after all their uh, fights inside the ring, outside the ring, and to see them come together and embrace at the end of the book. Uh, and it was because Joe basically uh, 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 wanted that, outward. wanted to resolve all that. You know, mm -hmm. I just think he had a big heart, you know, and people with a big heart, you know, touch me, and, and your dad touched me. He certainly did. And uh, he'd be very proud of you. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank you for that. I think that's a great place to finish. So thank you very much for coming out in those comments. And thanks for uh, Vincent and Mark. Um, their books are over there for sale, the far corner of the Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can find both of these over there. Uh, the a percentage of the sales goes to a Rutgers Camden Writer House program to do writing clubs in Camden with fourth through eighth graders. So we're supporting young people if you go buy a book and then you get a great book. So and there's a table over there for signing. So y'all can sign books and take take up more questions if uh, with them if you have. So thank you very much. Thanks everybody for coming. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Smoking Joe and Jersey Joe, a panel I was fortunate to moderate at the Collingswood Book Festival. If you have feedback or want to contact me, you can look up Joe Samuel Starnes on Twitter or Facebook and visit our website, uh, writerslatitude.com, and send me a note. It'd be great to hear from you.